turn to James chapter 1. Today is the last message in our series, In It to Win It. It's the eighth one and the final one. So if you want a title for this message, I've called it The Man in the Mirror. And we're going to at least be kicking off with James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. They read as follows. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let me just grab my watch and then we'll pray. Can I borrow somebody's watch? That'll be good. Let's pray. Well, Father, what a joy it is to be gathered around your word. It's your word that makes a difference in our lives, that speaks to our souls. And it's your word that changes our lives and brings our lives alive. So, Lord, would you bring us alive today? Lord, we want to, we want to be doers of the word. We want to understand that in the mirror of your word is our face and we want to therefore go away and make changes. So, Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you give us grace for any change that is needed? Would you infuse us with your grace? Would we see our face and indeed see the face of the Savior as we gather around your inspired and holy words? In Jesus' name, amen. Last Monday, on my day off, I awoke to some really sad news. It was Emma that told me, and she she informed me that Gary Speed at the age of 42, had ended his life and committed suicide. For those of you that don't know who Gary Speed is, Gary Speed is a British sporting icon. He was a professional soccer player for 22 years. He made over 535 appearances in the Premier League, which is our best soccer league by a long way. In 2010, having retired from football then and been this international great superstar, he became the manager of Sheffield United, and he did that job for six months before becoming the national team coach, the coach of Wales. And he really turned that team around within no time. They, Wales aren't very good. I'm English, so English, we, we try and play well. Wales aren't too good at soccer. But having lived there for 17 years of my life, I do want them to win. I want them to succeed. But they weren't very good. But this guy took on the, the coaching, and out of seven games, they managed to win five. And so they're lined up to be taken part in the World Cup as long as they keep winning in the way they are. This guy is a great guy. Professionally speaking, he had it all. Financially speaking, he had it all. He's a professional footballer, and they are not poor. They're incredibly wealthy. And in his life, he seemed to have it all. He was married to a lady who he dearly loved with two children, two boys, aged 13 and 14. Just a few weeks ago, he was interviewed about his family. 
And he said on national television that his family are worth more to him than any other medal. And he would trade any medals just to be with them. And he, so he had a great family as well. So you think, this guy had it all. He had a professional career, had all the money. He had a great family. And yet last Saturday, after appearing on Football Focus, which he appeared in uh, many weeks, just commenting on the games and describing the things that were happening and why they were happening, after a few hours of that, his wife found him hanging in his own garage. And the whole nation genuinely is just like, why? What, what happened there? Yesterday at football matches, most of the games had a minute's silence for him. Different tributes were paid on the pitch. So literally hundreds of thousands of people in the UK would be wondering, just why? What's gone on? This guy had it, had it all. And yet he hung himself in his own garage. You know, we will probably never know why. We'll probably never know the intricacies as why he actually took his own life in a very intricate way. But in a broad brush way, I do think we know why. Because in a broad brush way, I think Gary Speed was sadly just one of the millions of people in our world who are lost. You see, God has made us. He made us to be with him. He made us to find our identity and our security and our joy in him. He made us to be with him in fullness. And yet mankind, as we read in Romans, has exchanged the creator for the created. And so mankind all around us is just spending their time looking at what can I find my joy in? What can I find my satisfaction in? And as mankind slowly but surely work out, this isn't enough for me. This isn't enough to satisfy me. In extreme cases, they do what Gary Speed did. And they end their lives in a desperate state of unsatisfaction, discontentment, and nowhere to turn. And the truth is, folks, there are people all over Sydney that are like that. Executives that on the face of it look like they got it all. But as soon as you go behind the scenes in their life, they are grieving and sad because it's not enough. Single moms who are struggling financially, who have nowhere to turn. Young people who are going through the troubles of life, the pressures of the HSC, the pressures of getting a job, the pressures of how on earth do you afford a house in Sydney, and instead turn to drink and drugs to cope with the issue as they try and find out where their satisfaction and their joy and their contentment can indeed really come from. Sydney is filled with people who are lost. It may look right on the outside, but inside it's not. Some people know it's not. Some people don't know, it, don't know it's not, and so they just keep searching. But our city is filled with people who are lost. And this series then has been all about going to them. Because we have to go to them. They're lost. And so it's been all about being in the world to win the world. Why? Well, so that by all means we may win some. So that we may win them to Jesus Christ. We may win them to the gospel. So that we avoid what took place in Gary Speed's life. So that they find true joy and contentment and satisfaction in the one that made them Christ. That's what this series then has been all about. And yet as the music fades on this series now. The question that I have been really running through my mind all week is simply this one. How can we, Sovereign Grace Church, avoid becoming the man in the mirror? How can we as a local church avoid, at the end of this series, avoid being the man in the mirror that we've just read about here in James chapter 1?
Because we can, can't we? And I know we can. It's so easy to come for seven weeks in a row and think, mate, that preaching was amazing. It changed my life. It just so affected me. It's infused me about reaching out to people with Jesus. We see ourselves in the mirror. We see where we need to change. But then over time, in reality, we go away and we make no changes at all. It's just enthusiasm. It's just zeal. You see, if you think that you have left any week in Sovereign Grace Church thinking you are blessed, you're deceived. Because James tells us we're never blessed in our hearing. We're blessed in our doing. We're blessed in seeing ourselves in the mirror and then go away and making changes. And it is that what brings us blessing. So the thing that has been plaguing me all week is, Lord, how, how do I ensure as the pastor of this church that people in this local church that I'm seeking to care for, how can I ensure that they avoid being the man in the mirror? I don't want to be the man in the mirror. I don't want you guys to be the man in the mirror that makes way no changes And so I've really come up with five things that I want to encourage you in today. Five ways of applying this whole series in just very practical, simple form. Five things that if we can remember, I think, become life-changing. Because I don't know about you, but for me, during this series, I I felt like a guy drinking through a fire hose at different times, as in, like, and this is so good, but whoa, where do we start? I mean, there's just so much to do, and Sydney's such a big city, and where do you, kind of, what do you do? Well, here's five suggestions. These are five pastoral recommendations from one pastor to his flock to try and care for you to ensure that we not be the man in the mirror. So number one, how do we avoid being the man in the mirror? Number one, watch your heart. Watch your heart. See, as we studied Jesus during this series, one of the things that I love about studying Jesus is you see the Savior's compassion. And you see the way that that fuels him and really becomes a hallmark of all of his evangelism. He's not just doing it because he thinks he should or he's been sent on a mission for God and he better get on with it. No, he really cares. He's he's bothered. He's filled with compassion as he engages people in the world. And so in Mark chapter 1, verse 41, we see a leper coming to him. I mean, to be a leper in in that era would be horrendous. You'd be removed from the camp. You'd be put outside of the city, in effect. And it would really be death by inches. Your body just begins to fall apart. And yet this leper knows that Jesus can save him. He knows he can heal him. And so he runs to Jesus and implores Jesus, please help me, heal me. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 41, it says this. It says, Jesus, moved with pity, stretched out his hand and touched him. It could have just said, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. But he wants you to understand the motive. Jesus moved with pity. He felt for this man. He understood what that would feel like to be in his predicament. And he, he feels for him with compassion. In Luke chapter 7, verse 13, he's entering to the town gates at Nain with his disciples. And there's a funeral procession. A widower has lost her son. Her son has died. And as Jesus enters into the gate, the funeral procession is coming out. Here's what happens. Verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. I love that. He had compassion on her. He felt for her. He put himself in her shoes as he walked past and she walked past in the procession and felt what it would be like to feel what she feels like. 
And so he was moved. And eventually then he brought that child back to life, just as an act of grace and love for her. Matthew 9, verse 35, Jesus has been teaching and preaching in crowds, in crowds in cities and in towns all over Galilee. For weeks he's been sharing the joys of the gospel with people. And wonderfully in this verse, Matthew tells us why he did that and how he felt about the people he was looking at. It says this, when he saw the crowds, listen to this, he had compassion on them. Here's why. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The Savior felt for people. He didn't just spend time with people or spend time in the world to win the world because it's his job. He didn't just spend time in the world to win the world because his pastor told him it was a good idea and he thinks he probably should. He spends time in the world to win the world because he loves people. And when he sees them, he sees Gary Speeds. He sees people who are harassed and helpless. And no matter what is coming out of their mouths, he sees beyond that and realizes they are lost. Not just in some doctrinal, theological, cerebral way, but lost practically in their lives, lost experientially. They are looking for home. They can't find home, so they find it in work or or sex or marriage or kids. They find it in numerous ways, but even that doesn't satisfy. They're looking for home, and Jesus knows that. And so he spends time with them and loves them, and as he encounters them, he is fueled with compassion. Well, I think if we're going to be effective and lasting in our mission, we too need to be fueled with compassion, don't we? It's not going to be enough if we just go with, well, this is what Sovereign Grace Church do, and so we should. That'll last about 30 minutes. But when you feel for people, that lasts a lifetime. When you're truly bothered about what they're going through, and you're truly bothered about the plight that they have before them, that changes lives and changes your whole motive as you try and win them to Jesus for the glory of God. And so I want to encourage you, watch your hearts. Watch them. How do you do that? Well, I think the way we watch our hearts is by ensuring that we are fueling our hearts with God's word. Jesus was fueled with compassion. And in the right sense, we need to be be fueled with Jesus' compassion too. And that's why we need to be around the word. I remember when I was a kid, I used to like lighting fires. It's a bit of a man thing. All men light fires. We don't know why. It just seems to be the way God made us. God made us to want to worship something and love fires. It seems to be a general run-of-the-mill thing. And I, I was no different. As a kid, I just absolutely loved fires. But even as a child, have you noticed the way the weather's turned as we prayed? You know, next week, we will not pray. Uh, God's sovereignty is reigning. We trust they are sheltering with somebody that they are bringing to Jesus right now. Anyway, I remember as a kid... I remember as a kid just enjoying fires, but even with fires, after a while I got a little bit bored with fires, and so my dad introduced me to the joy of petrol. And, mate, that was just so cool. I mean, I say he introduced me to it. What that means is he once bought a canister for the, uh, the lawnmower. Well, that's introducing to me too, isn't it? So I went and I found it, and I thought, this, I've heard that this probably petrol bombs. That sounds fun. And so I would get cups out of my mum's cupboard, and put petrol in them, and after we lit the fire and nobody was looking, I'd throw the whole petrol, and the whole thing would just go, Poof. I loved that. That was great. So great that I just went back and fetched more petrol and did it over and over again. But the effect the petrol had on a fire 
is it made something that was already there really come alive. Well, God's word does that to our hearts when it comes to compassion. You see, we don't just naturally feel warm towards unbelievers, I don't think. Sometimes we do, but many times we won't. (laughs) Many times we won't. But when we spend time in God's word, and we spend time in God's word understanding the compassion of the Savior for these people, that changes our lives. That's like fuel for our heart and affects the way we see people for the glory of God. And so here's a couple of thoughts. Number one, regularly study and meditate on the realities of heaven and hell. Regularly spend time in study and meditation on the realities of heaven and hell. If heaven and hell are real and we spend time around them, that will make a massive difference to the way we see our neighbours and the people that don't know Jesus around us. It will make a massive difference. But so often I think we live so much in the here and now, we don't think about the realities of heaven and hell, so we're not that fast. But when we realise the realities of heaven and hell, we realise the realities of where our home is and where their long eternal home will be. Oh my, that changes our motivation to want to win them. Number two, regularly study and meditate on the realities of Calvary. When we gaze at Jesus and we see the glories and horrors of our sin and the glories and horrors of what he has done in our place, you can't help but be moved with compassion for people. That's what we're called to do. Number three, finally, make good cross-centered songs the theme tunes of your day. You know, we can go to work and travel into work listening to, you know, Your Sex is on Fire, which isn't the best theme tune of the day you've ever known. Or we can listen to gospel-centered songs which actually inform our days. The power of words in songs have have the ability to become the theme tunes of our days. And if you are traveling into work and you are listening to all I have is Christ and the truth of in darkness night when I was gone, he came after me. When you see your colleague's face then come towards you, you feel differently. Because you're aware this is true for me, but not true for them. Man, I've got to find opportunities. So there are ways, I think, of watching our hearts. Well, however you do it is up to you, but watch your heart. It's a way of ensuring that we not be the man in the mirror. Number two, watch your time. A.W. Tozer says it this way, one of my favorite authors. He says, The church is constantly being tempted to accept this world at home. But if she is wise, she will consider that she stands in the valley between the mountain peaks of eternity past and eternity to come. The past is gone forever, and the present is passing as swift as the shadow on the sundial of Ahaz. Even if the earth should continue a million years, not one of us would stay to enjoy it. And so we would do well to think of the long tomorrow. You know, I think so often in our lives, I know with myself, I can think that I'm just going to live forever. You know what I'm saying? Now, if you actually pin me down and say, do you think you can live forever? I say, of course not. But the way I live my life is if I am going to start making plans for next week and next month and next year and 10 years and 20 years. Because I just think I've got all the time in the world. And yet, as A.W. Tozer says, in all reality, we haven't. Our lives are passing as swift as the shadow of the sundial of Ahaz. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 103. He says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. That really puts man's life into perspective, eh? Whatever type of superstar you are, whatever type of life you have, and you know what you like? Where you like grass 
flourishes for a little while and then the wind blows and you're gone and nobody remembers you anymore. Yeah, your kids remember you. Your grandkids probably remember you. Great-grandkids, maybe. Great-great-granddads, kids, they'll have never heard of you. So 100 years, you're gone. So is most of your memory. But I thought my life was so important. Oh, it is. And that's why you must, like the Apostle Paul says, make the best use of the time. Our lives are passing. It's so easy to think, oh, evangelism, it's so important. I'll get onto that next year. Maybe you won't have a next year. And maybe the person that you're seeking to reach out to for the glory of the gospel, maybe they won't have a next year either. There is a sense of urgency in the Bible, which is why Paul says in so many of the different readings and letters that he does, make the best use of time. He's saying, look, come on, be urgent. You don't know how long you've got. This is important. This is a priority now. You will always be too busy for it, but we always take time for things that are important. This is important. So clear off other things so that we're less busy, so that we can provide time to win people to Jesus. That we can provide time to be in the world, to win the world, given its massive priority. We must make the best use of time. Because we don't know how much time we've got. And so I want to encourage you, over the next few weeks, one way I think we can apply this is by trying to commit to paper as best we can just our strategy of how we personally are going to be in the world to win the world. See, I think this is really, really important. Because I think for so many of us, me certainly included, the road to nowhere is paved with good intentions. You know what I'm saying? And you go away and you think, oh man, I'm so excited about being in it to win it. How are you going to do it? I don't know, but as the Spirit leads, uh-huh, he might be, what, what, what if he's leading you to write it down? You know, we've got to actually think of things. And just, how am I going to do it? How am I actually going to win people? So I, we, Emma and I went out for lunch with a group of unbelievers on Friday. It was Janine's birthday. And I'm talking to Trevor and we're, we're chatting away, an unbeliever. And he's saying, oh, mate, I want to start playing soccer. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to start playing soccer for Rascal. And he said, oh, I already play for another club. And you think, okay, well, what can we do? And I said, well, maybe, you know, there's a few guys at my church that might want to set up a, a six-a-side soccer club and maybe we could do so. He said, oh, I, I love that. Put me down for that. And I think, I've got to think through actively for me what is it actually going to look like. Otherwise, in six months' time, we're having the same conversation. And I've still not done anything. And you've still not done anything. And we don't quite know what we're going to do. And so I really want to encourage you, spend time over the next few weeks actually thinking through, okay, on paper, who am I going to reach and how am I going to try and do it? What's this actually going to look like? How, how am I going to provide this time? What time is it needed? And we want to be prayerful in that. We don't just want it to be our little plan, but under divine the working of the Holy Spirit, we want to ask the Lord, how can, where do we go forward? You see, for everything else in our lives... For everything else in our lives, we plan for things that are important, don't we? You go on holiday, you have your brochures out, you spend time looking at all the hotels, you think, oh man, I've got to think about what we're going to do on different days, and then we'll eat there, and we'll do that, because it's important. TV viewing was very important for me as a child, very, very important. And so we have something called the Radio Times that comes out at Christmas, and it just has all the different channels in it with all the different films on I would always be the first person to get this off my mum after she purchased it from the shop and I would get my highlighter pen out and I would go through all the days and highlight all the things I want to see because I didn't want to miss anything because it was important to me. I didn't want to miss anything. Planning was important because I wanted to be intentional and get the best out of it. I think that's what we need to do with mission too. And we need to actively think through as a church and then individually, what are we going to do then? How 
Would your community be different if you were dead? Would they even notice? If the answer is, they wouldn't even notice. We've got to change. The church has got to change. And individually, we've got to change. Because we've got to be in the world to win the world. And that's what we're called to do. That's how we avoid being the man in the mirror. So what's your time? Consider generally in mission, how are you going to be in the world to win the world? And chat about it then in life groups. We'll be spending time in February and March on this as well, just looking, okay, how's it looking like for you, for me? How's it, how can I be praying for you? This is how you can be praying for me. Start to put some action on it so that we not be the man that looks in the mirror and goes, oh my, I need to be in it to win it. Goes away, makes no changes. We want to make changes. Number three, what's your life? St. Augustine, a quote that Lewis Roderick, one of the pastors at Sovereign Grace Church in the UK, gave me. Just love it. He says, don't let your life give evidence against your tongue. Sing with your voices, but sing also with your wise conduct. I love that. It's so clever. Don't let your life give evidence against your tongue. Sing with your voices, but sing also with your wise conduct. A few weeks ago, we looked at the importance of watching our lives, and we looked at the whole premise of living a life less ordinary, the importance of the way we live our lives, our conduct and our speech makes such a difference in winning the world to Jesus because it's through those things that people don't get saved through those things because that would be a bit weird. They get saved through the gospel, but it's through those things that they actually see the gospel. They see the transforming effect of the gospel on Christians' lives. And so it's through those things, the way we live our lives, that they, even find, they either find the gospel attractive or repels them from it. And I've seen both operating in my life. I've seen people that make the gospel very attractive. And I've heard unbelievers say with my own ears that if Christianity is that, I don't want a part of it. Okay, that's repelled somebody away from the gospel because of the way somebody's lived. And so it's so important then that we watch our lives, that we watch our, who we are for the glory of God. Because the way we live and the words we use, they matter. F.F. F. Bruce, one of the quotes that I gave you a few weeks ago, says, it remains true that the reputation of the gospel is bound up with the behavior of those who claim to have experienced its saving power. It's bound up. The gospel's saving power and you, it's bound up together. People who do not read the Bible for themselves or listen to the preaching of the word of God, look at the lives of those who do, you, and then this is what they do. They form their judgment accordingly. People look at your lives, they look at your speech, they look at the way you live, and they form their judgment accordingly on whether the transforming effect of the gospel is real or not, whether it's worth it or not. So are our lives and the words we use important? Oh, they're vital. They are absolutely vital. And so it's so important then that we watch our lives. Now, this doesn't mean perfection, does it? As we said a few weeks ago, this doesn't mean Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. But we ain't going to be completely like Jesus until he returns. You know what I'm saying? And the Bible says that anybody says that sin is not within them is a liar. So that's a sin. Don't do that. You know, we are sinners. We, we do things wrong in our lives. It's, watching our lives doesn't mean perfection. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 says, the very things I want to do, I don't do. And the very things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And oh, Who's going to deliver me from this body of evil? You know, his premise is, I can't believe I keep doing these things. It doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean different. 
It means a people who are different. They see something different. They see a joy that they don't necessarily just see in everybody else. They see a humility that they don't necessarily just see in anybody else. They see values that are different, that albeit imperfect, they don't necessarily just see in their unbelieving friends. Our lives are important. The way we live our lives are important. In fact, that's why it's important that we attend the divine changing room. That's why it's important that we give time to change in our lives, to sanctification, to putting off the old self and putting on the new self, as it talks about in Scripture. That's why life groups and fellowship groups are so important. I've had talks with other pastors before, and they say, listen, I think your life groups and your fellowship groups are a complete waste of time. You say, why is that? Well, because it should be the Bible study where people understand the Bible better, or just get them out there telling people about Jesus. So, okay, that's different. And it's my joy to tell him, you know what, I think you're missing the point. Because mission is built on the back of people's lives. If you don't concentrate then on people's lives, there's nothing for people to see. Because we're just like the world. We're in the world and just like the world. So really the gospel doesn't transform effect at all. So the idea of therefore, let's not do life groups, let's not do fellowship groups, let's just do evangelism ministry, great. I agree with you. Life groups and fellowship groups are evangelism ministry. Because there are moments where we get to do life together and care for one another and encourage one another and start to confess our sin to one another and grow and become more like Christ as a result of it so that as we go into the world, people see you're different. There's something about you. There's something about your life that's attractive. So we need to watch our lives. So don't for one minute think that I'm not going to get a life group tonight because I'm just going to do evangelism. No, life group is evangelism. It's part of the mission. It's part of being a disciple of Christ. Being a disciple, sitting under his care, sitting under his application, sitting with my friends that I'm called to be with, joining arms with my friends, asking them to help me in my life, encouraging them and guarding them and caring for them for the glory of God. We need to watch our lives Because our lives either make the gospel attractive or they repel people away. Or they're just completely indifferent. Let our lives not be indifferent. God says things about indifferent. He says that he spits us from his mouth when we're indifferent. We need to be sold out for Jesus Christ and we need to watch our lives. Number four then, watch your weapons. You know... One of the things I've been doing as I listen to Mark's messages just on the gospel and prayer and the, the weaponry that God's given us, I was just rejoicing at different points that God hasn't sent us on this mission by ourselves. I mean, is it just me or would that be a fearful thing, thinking, okay, here's what I've got to do. I've got to go to Warunga Fair. There are no God weapons. So all it is is my personality, my ability to articulate, and I hope I can win them in. What if they ask some really complicated question? I have to argue them in. Oh, my gosh, this is going to be really hard. It would be such a nightmare if I thought and if you thought that in evangelism their salvation was dependent upon our personality or our talents or our arguments or our articulation. But it's not. God in his profound grace has given us two incredible life-changing weapons to head into the mission with. As he sends us into the world to win the world, he doesn't just say, okay, well, all the best. He says, listen, as you go... I'm giving you two weapons that are going to change people's lives. 
Because your personality and your articulation, your arguments are really not very good, but thanks for playing. But my weapons are really good. The weapon of the gospel and the weapon of prayer, they can change people's lives in an absolute moment. And so I want you to go into the world to win the world, not dependent upon yourself, not using the gifts that I've given to you as yours disposal. I I want you to go into the world to win the world with my weaponry, the gospel and prayer. First of all, then gospel, Romans 1.16. Just a powerful, powerful verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is... That is one of the most potent and penetrating statements in the entire New Testament. That is a full-on, a full-on statement. You see, what Paul is doing there is equating the incredible omnipotent power of God in his majesty and sovereignty with the message of the gospel. That's incredible. He is equating the one that spins the galaxies, who wants to put the, puts the stars into place, that names them and sustains them so that no one is missing. He equates his power, the one that breathes forth the sun, the one who sustains all the animals, the one who brings snow, the one that says to the tides, this farther and no further. The one who sends the lightning, who sends the thunder, the one who is ultimately sovereign and in control of all all things, in all of life, in all of humanity, in all of the world. The one who just builds everything that you see as a natural beauty. This verse equates his incredible omnipotent power with the message of the gospel. Christ and him crucified. The one that we tell people about. The one that we sat with people and we say, you know what? The thing is God made us. And he made us not just to go and live our lives. He made us to find our identity and our joy and our satisfaction in him. But we didn't do that, right? We screwed up. We all messed up. And so that's why the world sucks in the way you see it. But that's why he sent Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus to give you life and life in abundance. He sent Jesus to take the punishment that your rejection of God earned. And through faith in Jesus, his death on the cross, you can have life and life in abundance. You can come back to the one who made you and who will sustain you and you can truly find joy in That's not just a story. That is equated in Romans with the power of God. And so when that is shared, it's dynamite to people. See, that should give us all the confidence in the world, I think, to go. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It has the power to save anyone. Who can stand against the one who says to the tides, this far and no further? No one. And that's one of the weapons then that God has given us in his grace to go into the world to win the world with. The other one is prayer. And prayer, I think, is so often negated and not really understood or utilized in the lives of so many Christians. But prayer, when you just stop and consider it, is is profound. You see, God is the gospel. What is the true fruit and joy of knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? It's God. It's being reconciled to God, spending time with the one who made you and sustains you and will bring you true satisfaction and joy. Prayer, then, is just an expression of talking to him, actually saying to him things and spending time with him in joy and for his glory. And in prayer, folks, we don't approach a have-a-go God. You know what I'm saying? We don't approach this little genie in the lamp that can't do much anyway. 
We approach a God who can change lives in a moment. We approach a God who is majestic and sovereign and huge. A God who saved you when you were running away from him, dead in your transgressions and sins. A God who is mighty to save, who is mighty to save anyone. And he says, if you want to see people saved, then cry out to me. And we say, yeah, but I've got a lot on. Prayer's not really my thing. What? If we are going to be successful and effective in mission, then we cannot and we must not go into the world that we've been sent into the world with just with our little arguments and personalities. Because that's rubbish. We've got to go into the world brandishing the sword that he's given us of the gospel and brandishing the acts of prayer that he's given us to say, right now we're going to do some damage to Jesus. Because I can't argue anybody in. I can't be funny enough that somebody says, oh my gosh, Christ, I want to follow him. That ain't going to work. You're not going to be nice enough to your neighbor next door where they say, you are so nice. How do I put my faith in Jesus? That's weird. They're all ways of winning people to ourselves. But the thing that's going to change their lives are prayer and the gospel. They're the things that are going to influence people and affect people's lives in a moment. I would genuinely submit to you that I think so many churches are ineffective in mission because they're trying to do it themselves. And if we try and do that ourselves, we will fail. We will. Because we're just not that good. But God is great. And he says, listen, go into all the world then and make disciples of all nations. And as you go, here's my gospel. For that's the power of God and salvation. Man, that is that's a powerful thing. And pray to me. Ask me. Talk to me about things that are on your heart. For God is sovereign not only the end, he is sovereign over the means. And so when we feel our spirit quickened to pray for someone, we can pray with so much confidence, being aware that he's quickened me to do this. Why is he quickened me to do this? So that he can say, nah. He's probably quickening me to do this because he wants to save them. And so, Lord, please save them. Give me grace and boldness to share with them. Lord, I believe that you have put me with this individual for the purpose of winning them to you. So, Lord, I'm coming to you in prayer. And, Lord, I'm going to go now with the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for their lives. Oh, that increases my confidence to go. You know what I'm saying? That changes everything. And so we must, by the grace of God, watch our weapons. You know, I think one of the things we've got to do in that is just be up and on our toes and ready to deploy them at the right time. I remember when I used to play soccer properly, when I used to be fit and could run more than 15 yards. I remember every Monday night we had practice, and I remember one week the coach just saying, you know what, Dave, here's, here's the thing. You spend a lot of time on your heels, and as a footballer, you're going to need to get on your toes a lot more. I'm like, well, what was that? And he said, because the ball goes past you. You know, and you're so busy sort of waiting for the ball on your back. By the time it comes to you, you've got to really change your position. It's taking you some time. But you wait on your toes. When the ball comes to you, you're ready. You're not having to get ready. You're, you're there. You're already leaning in, and disposition is to want to get the ball. And you'll win the ball more if you just look like that. I think it's like that with these weapons as well. I think sometimes in Christianity, we can be so long outside of the mission that the weapon of prayer and the weapon of the gospel are rotting in the garage somewhere because we don't fully expect them to use them until our neighbor eventually says, so you go to church, what do you believe? And we go rushing down to the garage in a panic thinking, oh my gosh, how do you share the gospel again? Uh, Where is it? That ain't going to work. 
I think daily we've got to be ready and equipping ourselves with the weapon of prayer and the weapon of the gospel, saying, okay, Lord, I'm ready. And so when those things happen in our lives and different conversations come up, we're not on our heels, we're on our toes. We're ready. We're ready to deploy. We're ready to engage people about the gospel. And so instead of letting those conversations go past where we think, oh, missed it, there's less, oh, missed it. There's more, I shared it today. I was chatting to Melody. Melody lives with us at the moment. She's our lodger. And after Wednesday night invest, where we were just talking about sharing the gospel, she came home Thursday all excited. We said, what are you excited about? She said, I shared the gospel today. And I said, Melody, just well done. That's just great that you would do that, that you would tell people about Jesus. But realize this as well. It's in part because we've raised attention to it and we're on our toes and we're ready. Those opportunities have every day of our lives. Just today you realized it and you were in. That's going to change our church life if we just watch our weapons and believe with great confidence that these are powerful, that these can change lives and then be ready to deploy them. People get saved that way. And that's pretty cool. When you're in a church that's growing with people getting saved every other week, it's exciting. And it's so thrilling when you're aware, I have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. You can all do that because God's powerful. And you know the gospel. If you don't know it, Listen up, because it's in the message nearly every week. It's there. Just tell them. Communicate, and God will do the rest. So watch your weapons. And finally, number five, watch your assurance. And how important this one is. This is, this is vital, that we watch our insurance. You see, whether we like it or not, evangelism... I think it's something that for so many of us we fail in. And to be honest, I think for so many of us it's something we fail in so often. At least I do. And I think that can so often be our story, can't it? I know with me, the amount of times as I've prepared these messages, you just think, oh my, how can I, how can I, how can I preach on this? Because my mind is just filled with all the times that I've missed it. So I'm just telling you there about the importance of being on our toes to share the gospel. And then I can think of numerous times in the last year where I haven't been ready. And, and it's gone. And you think, oh, I'm rubbish. And then I start thinking about my life, times where I've been spending time with unbelievers. And you think, oh, why did I say that? That didn't reflect well on Jesus. That was a really stupid thing to say. Or then they eventually ask you a question and you realize in hindsight your answer was just poor at best. I mean, it was just rubbish. You think, they are never going to get saved off that. They could be Hindu for all I know now. I mean, this, what is this? That was just such a rubbish answer. And so my mind can be filled with all the things that I haven't done or all the things that I have done wrong. And I think for so many of us, evangelism can be like that. We get consumed with the mistakes we've made or the errors we've made or the moments we've missed. And, and that's why I think it's so important and vital that we watch our assurance in this as well. It's so important. You see, everything that we've discussed so far is absolutely vital. If we are going to avoid being the man in the mirror, then it's so important that we watch our hearts, that we allow the compassion of Christ to fuel us to get out into the world to win the world. Not because we should, but because we want it. Because we see people and we see that they are helpless and harassed and we want to go to them then and care for them and love them because they're lost. It's important that we watch our time. Not just coming up with 154 Christian excuses as to why we can't make it. 
But instead realizing, no, this is an important priority in my life and so my time needs to change so that I can bring this about as a reality. We need to watch our lives, ensuring that our lives really do reveal Christ, albeit imperfectly, but nonetheless in a way that we're becoming more like Christ over time as we put on and put off. And it's important that we watch our weapons. It's vital that we watch our weapons because we can't argue people in in and of ourselves or like them into Christ. The gospel does that. And prayer enables that to come about. All those things are vital, but we need to watch our assurance. And what I mean by that is this. Your standing and your acceptance before God is in no way based upon your performance and mission. It isn't, and it never will be. Your standing and your assurance before God as the maker of heaven and earth is based upon the performance and mission of another. Christ. Christ and him crucified. You see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came after you. He chose you. He knew your name. And as he died upon a cross, he died for your sins. As you then put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior, forgiveness is your theme. He removes your sins as far as the east is from the west. He washes you with his righteousness. He clothes you in his perfection. He then adopts you into his family and assures you that heaven is going to be your home and all the way to home, I'm going to care for you and watch you and hold you because you are now a child of the king. And so, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within that relates to your mission, all the times that you missed, all the opportunities that you didn't get right, all the things that you said that were just rubbish... Upward you must look and see him there. The one whose mission was perfect. The one whose mission was completely perfect. The one who died in your place so that even the mistakes in your mission would be completely washed clean. It's so easy in our lives to feel condemnation and guilt in the area of mission. That is Satan tempting us to despair. But our acceptance and joy before God is not based upon our mission. That's legalism. Our acceptance and joy before God is based upon the mission of another. The mission of Jesus Christ in our place. It is all because of him. That is why faith alone saves. Not faith through my efforts in Warunga Village Fair. Faith alone. In Christ alone. By grace alone. And so folks, watch your assurance. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of your wrong mission your lack of mission, your need to grow. Upward you must look and see him there and be aware that God sings over me. He delights in me. And he delights in me not because of my behavior. He delights in me because of the behavior of his son, because of the perfect mission of Jesus Christ in my place. And that then should fuel us with joy to go on our mission. See, we've been called on mission, my friends. We've been called to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that he's commanded us. That's not a call to pastors. That's a call to Christians. And so we must do that, not because our assurance rests on it or our salvation rests on it. It doesn't. Our assurance and our salvation rests on Christ and him alone. But we do it because there are people out there like Gary Speed. They're lost. Some know it. Some don't. 
But all of them need a saviour. And as the Father has sent me, Jesus said, I now send you. I send you with my weapons. I send you with my compassion. I send you with my heart. So folks, I want to encourage you then. Let's be in it to win it. Let's not be the man in the mirror who looks and goes away and makes no changes. But for the glory of God, let's consider very practically what are the changes going to look like for me? Why? So that by all means I may save some. That I may win some. As I tell them about Jesus, as I live for Jesus in front of them, Lord, have your way in that. And would that be our story? Let's pray. Well, Lord, this mission that you have sent us on can be overwhelming at times. Lord, we can feel so inadequate, so confused sometimes what to say, so aware of moments where we failed. And yet I thank you that our acceptance before you does not stand on our mission. It stands upon your mission. And Father, would you enable us then, having been equipped by that and infused by that, to truly brandish the gospel here in Sydney and take it out to the communities around us that so desperately need it. Lord, would we not back away from the mission you've called us to, but would we be prepared to be different? Would we be prepared to be looking ourselves in the mirror and then very actively and conscientiously and full of integrity going away and making changes so that by all means we may win some? Father, Would you help us then to expect the unexpected? Lord, the people that you've brought into our lives, they're not just accidents. They're not just people that we meet randomly. They're people that you are bringing across our path. And then having handed us the gift of prayer and the gospel, you call us to go. So Father, would we go? And by all grace then, would we truly win some? In Jesus' name. Amen.